Mark 6, not Matthew. We'll be doing the first uh, almost six verses up to 6b. And he went from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How were such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Uh, Father, in these last days you have spoken to us by your Son, who has also made purification for our sins and is now seated at your right hand. As we hear his voice this morning, uh, let us not harden our hearts, testing and trying you. Help us to not turn away from you with evil, unbelieving hearts. Help us to receive the message as true, to hear it in faith, and to enter your rest through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this week, I went home. <laughs> um, and going home uh, can bring up very different feelings uh, for people based on uh, their memories and experiences. And uh, my mind keeps going back to a little girl who got lost in a twister who only wanted to go home. And uh, I don't know why she wanted to go home. There was that lady who was persecuting her. Uh, but she went through this, from our perspective, uh, extraordinary period of time and experiences and adventures uh, in this land called Oz. Uh, but uh, towards the end, she still wanted to go home. And she, there's no place like home, she was told to say. And uh, as she was clicking her heels of her ruby slippers, uh, she was transported back to home. There is no place like home. Uh, whether it is the place of your fondest memories and greatest pleasures, or whether it's a place that you wish you'd never see again. Jesus went home. That's what we're about today. Jesus' experience when he went home. So how was Jesus received when he went home? Let's remember that Jesus was an itinerant rabbi, and, and while his base in, Matt, in Mark's gospel seems to be Capernaum, uh, where Peter lived, and that seems to be where Jesus uh, made kind of home base, uh, Jesus was traveling around to a number of different communities, and um, but Jesus always seemed to do what was a little unexpected. 
you have a hard time kind of putting Jesus in a box. And, and I imagine that the disciples were probably much like I feel with my father. I just never know what he's going to do. When he's going to change his mind and shift, and, and I'm left kind of going, all right, I missed that left turn. Um, <laughs> that's, that's probably a lot of how the disciples felt. Uh, because it says that he went away from there, meaning Capernaum, in the, in the Sea of Galilee, and he came to his hometown. And what I, why, when I say it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense in the fact that the crowds um, by the Sea of Galilee were swarming Jesus. There was all kinds of great ministry that was taking place by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus had people who were coming to him and people who were being healed, the people who were having demons cast out of them. Uh, and Jesus is able to preach the message of the kingdom. And it seemed like there was a never-ending sort of adventure. And why would he want to go home? But he does. Jesus leaves behind the crowds. And he travels the, the 25 to 40 miles that it was to Nazareth. He goes west. And I say 25 to 40 because I get these different accounts of how far it was. And the best I can reckon is if you go as the crow flies, it's 25. If you go as you can walk or a car can drive, it's 40 miles. So that explains, I think, the discrepancy. But we see that it is west of the Sea of Galilee uh, and a little bit south. And so that is where um, <clears throat> Jesus went. Um, if you're Nathan, uh, th- that's, a, that's a good day's jog or run, as he tends to do some of these super marathons. But for us mere mortals, uh, that is a couple of days' walk. Okay? So, Jesus and his disciples with him uh, make this journey. Now, we have a slight problem. Or, if we're paying attention, we might have a slight problem. We're not sure what to do with Luke 4. That's why Rick read it this morning. Um, is this the same trip to Nazareth, or is it a different trip to Nazareth? Now, if we're thinking up about both of these gospel accounts, uh, and, and as we tend to think of history, okay, uh, we're thinking they can't be the same. But remember, they're they're structuring these stories of Jesus, these true stories. Okay, when I say stories, I don't mean made up stuff. Uh, but not necessarily in chronological order. They have, they have a purpose and a plan for how they structure their individual Gospels. Okay. So for Luke, it's, it's, you know, he places it near the beginning of Jesus' ministry after his baptism. But uh, for Mark, it seems to be a little bit later in his ministry. But we have a lot of the same language that goes on within these. Uh, we have some facts that are, are some things that are left out by the other gospel person. Uh, for instance, <coughs> Mark mentions that the disciples were with him. In Luke's account, there's no mention of the disciples. That's one of the things that's different. But we also have the text that Jesus read from in Luke's account, <coughs> Isaiah, and, uh, and how Jesus declared that that prophecy of the Messiah was now fulfilled in their presence. And uh, we also have the unfortunate reality that they didn't try, then tried to kill Jesus by tossing him off of a cliff. Mark leaves all of that out. So we're, we're left with that question, is... Is this a second visit to Nazareth, or is it the same visit? 
just that he felt it not important to put those details in because Mark has a slightly different point than Luke did. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me. I'm coffee today. Um, you, you recognize... Um, When uh, we were watching the Super Bowl, for instance, uh, I was with my father and my brother. We were telling a couple of stories, and uh, we each had different details because there were different things that stood out to us and things that stood out to them. And uh, my brother, for instance, remembers taking me to see wrestling uh, when I was a kid. But he has it at the elementary school down the street from us, and, and I... Don't remember him ever bringing me, uh, but I do remember going to see some professional wrestling at the junior high that I went to. Okay, minds are like that. He remembers one, parts of it that are, that are accurate. I remember other parts that are accurate. Um, neither Mark nor Luke is inaccurate. Okay, but they have different points of emphasis, and therefore. They're bringing up certain things and, and leaving out certain things. Now, what happens on this trip? Well, positively, we hear that those who heard Jesus were astonished. They're amazed because there's an authority that is characterized by his teaching. It's, it's in the way that he says it and, and what he says, and they probably never heard a rabbi speak like this ever before. And so, on one hand, they're astonished. But on the other hand, um, that astonishment is not necessarily a good thing because they begin to question the source of his words. They begin to question the source of his deeds precisely because this Jesus guy is so familiar to them. And the Jesus they knew is not the Jesus they see. And so it is with all of these questions that arise... Is this not the carpenter? Jesus, he was trained to work with his hands. He was not trained as a rabbi. And so it's natural for them to think, how did he gain this kind of wisdom? How did he gain this mastery of the scriptures? How did he gain this, these profound insights into the truth? He is but a carpenter. Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, not, not Nazareth, but more the audience of Mark, okay, when he writes this gospel, they tended to disparage manual labor. And some of this had to do with the effect of Plato and, uh, you know, uh, the physical world being not so important. Um, but philosophers, good. People who work with their brains, good. People who work with their hands, eh, feel sorry for you. Okay? We still suffer from that in some degree. Okay? We just call it white collar, blue collar. Right? So, 
But part of the reality of the Greco-Roman culture was also uh, that, particularly in Rome, that there was low social mobility. Uh, You did not rise from the ranks all the way up to a general. You already started high and became a general. You had to be part of a prominent family in order to become a senator, somebody important. You, You couldn't change, really, your status and culture and society very much. And so when you think of the introduction to this gospel of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, how can He be the Son of God? He's merely a carpenter. But it's not just that. Isn't this the Son of Mary? Now, in Luke's account, he, he mentions, isn't this the son of Joseph? Okay. Now, people could have said both things. And Luke focuses on one, and Mark focuses on the other. It's not as though one is lying, or one is mistaken, or whatever. Okay. But Mark brings this up precisely because, in a, in a sense, you're always your father's son. There, there are people for whom I will always be Tony's boy. What well, seems to be going on here because suddenly he's Mary's son is that apparently they're questioning his legitimacy. That, you know, I know Joseph raised him, but is he really Joseph's son? Like the rest of the boys. Them we know about. Jesus, we're not so sure. But we also see that they continue. Isn't this the brother of James and Joseph or Joseph and Judah? Isn't Isn't he the one whose brothers went out with their mom to take charge of him because they thought he was crazy? Which Mark relates to us in chapter 3, verse 21. We see similar instances. For for instance, uh, John 7, for not even his brothers believed in him. What do we see going on here? We see another indication that the flesh or unbelief sees only the obvious and rejects the fact that Jesus is more than he appears to be. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 2, we read, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we have these people in Nazareth who are the natural person. They don't accept what Jesus is saying, and they don't accept who Jesus claims to be because they're not learned intellectually, they are spiritually discerned. God must reveal it to them, and He hasn't. And so they're astonished and they're amazed, but negatively. It is due to their unbelief, it's due to the familiarity which sometimes breeds contempt that Mark recounts that they took offense at Him. Or put another way, uh, in keeping, if we transliterate that word, they were scandalized by Jesus. 
It's important that the disciples were there. Because the disciples could begin to think uh, that ministry is always successful if they were to hang around Capernaum. Jesus brings them, I think, in part to show them that ministry is often marked by ineffectiveness, unwelcomeness, rejection. They had to learn not just that there's rejection in general, but that the message of Jesus often offends the people that are closest to you. That's why it's hard for me to go home. As far as I know, I'm it. Jesus has plucked me as a brand from the fire. And I'm sort of, well, one, I'm always going to be the baby. Right? And who listens to the baby? Right, Ash? Does anybody listen to you? No. If you're the youngest, you understand this. You're young and you're foolish. And you'll always be young and foolish compared to them. And so uh, when I come with a, with a message of, of mercy in Jesus Christ, it's, it's not welcome. It's not appreciated by those who are closest to me. And in some sense, it's because of the familiarity. Uh, They remember me as I was, and not as much as who I am, that it takes place. And so the message of Jesus offends those closest to you. And if it doesn't, praise God. And I'm telling, that's an imperative. Be incredibly thankful. So, how was Jesus received? The message of Jesus is offense them. What does Jesus reveal about himself and therefore Israel by his presence and by his statements there? Jesus' response to their lack of welcome at the synagogue is incredibly telling. If we were to use relational wisdom language, He had serious goss going on, and I change it to goss. God, awareness, other awareness, self-awareness. Jesus knows who God is, and he's aware of what God thinks of him. He's very aware of them, the others, and what they think of him. And he's very aware of who he is. When he says this thing, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. It's sort of a proverbial uh, statement, but it's true. Jesus was uh, was honored uh, by the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and other places, but he's not being honored there. Jesus is aware of their response to him. But Jesus is also aware of what... God has done for him and that he is a prophet. 
A prophet is one who is called to that office. It's not one you take to yourself. And so his God awareness, God the Father had called him to be a prophet. And he is. So he's aware of who he is. He senses this calling upon him that the Father has placed upon him. Jesus is not simply another rabbi passing through town who wants to encourage the local faithful. Jesus is a prophet. In other words, Jesus is one who is called by God in order to speak for God to the people of God. Called by God? to speak by God to the people of God. And I wish I was a better artist. I would, have, I would come up with some great diagram that would indicate some of this. But essentially, the prophet functions in two ways. Okay? The first way is in the giving of the covenant. Okay? God speaks to his people through the prophet in order to make the covenant. Okay? Now, in the case of Abraham, he was both the prophet and the people. <laughs> but God spoke. But think of Moses. God speaks to Moses uh, for this administration of the Mosaic Covenant uh, that is given to the people. And so there's God, there's the prophet, there's the people. The giving of a covenant. God also speaks to the prophet in the... Um, execution, or shall we say, the administration of that covenant. By that I mean this. The prophet is hearing from God about what the circumstances and actions of the people of God are and what will happen to them on the basis of the covenant promises and sanctions. And so the prophet is always an officer, yeah, the prophet is always an officer of the covenant. It's all, his work is always connected to the covenant that God makes with his people. Uh, whether he's the instrument of, of that being initiated or whether he's the one who's applying it and saying, hey, <laughs> you have this huge sin problem over here and I'm reminding you of what God said over here and it's not just general, it's the Babylonians. Do you understand? That's what Jesus is doing. He's coming as a prophet. He's declaring himself to be not just a prophet, however, but he's actually the prophet, like Moses, that these people have been claiming they have wanted for so long. We, that's why we read from Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Here is Jesus, not simply a prophet, but the long-awaited prophet, the final prophet, and they're supposed to listen to him because he speaks the words of God. They are not simply offended or scandalized by an itinerant rabbi, but they, some local boy, but rather they are scandalized by God's final prophet. 
As it says in Isaiah 53, they esteemed Him not. They thought Him of low account. Of essentially a nobody when He is really the most important person who ever walked the face of the earth. Reminded of Ezekiel 33. Well, actually, Ezekiel 33 reminded me of this because I read it like the week before. 31. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. But wait. Ezekiel 31 continues. 33 rather continues. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on gain, or their greed. Behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on the instrument, for they hear what you say, but will not do it. Notice the repetition there. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. Jesus to them was just like this singer of songs who plays the instrument well. Uh, it was a performance from their, from their, they're being entertained, so to speak. Or that's at least that's what they're expecting. They hear what Jesus says, but just like with Ezekiel, there is no commitment to do what he says. This Jesus comes as a prophet to initiate the new and final covenant. But in doing so, He reveals the sinfulness of man as well as God's mercy. The message of our, sin, of our sinfulness, rather, ugh, I'm tongue-tied. The message of our sinfulness offends people. Especially when they know you. What? You, you think you're better than me? Remember, they know your sins. Now, in the case of Jesus, there's none to point out, but nonetheless, they, they think they know Jesus. And who are you to talk like this to us? You're the carpenter. You're Mary's son. People are offended by Jesus when he speaks of particular sins because sometimes Jesus threatens your pet sins. And so there's that really interesting to me exchange in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce, where um, the angel has this, uh, well, the angel doesn't have it. He encounters a man who has a lizard upon his shoulder. And you see the, the bright shining one there. And there's the red lizard upon the shoulder who whispers into his ear. And that's really the, the pet sin, which in this case was lust. And the angel keeps asking, would you like me to remove the lizard for you? And the, and the guy keeps coming close, but the, he keeps backing off. You know? Because it's his pet sin. It's the one he feeds and the one he feels that loves him. And, and uh, you know, and he ends up walking away uh, from the angel to death. When Jesus comes, one of the reasons He offends us or offends people 
is because he puts their, his finger on their sin. And it doesn't have to be a monstrously horrible sin from our perspective, but it's sin nonetheless. And it's sin that separates us from God. But another way that he offends is when Jesus says something like this, no one comes to the Father except through me. As he said in John's Gospel. Salvation exclusively or only through Jesus Christ offends people. Because it declares that all roads do not go to the same place. Spurgeon, uh, at one point in one of his sermons, uh, brings up this illustration that <clears throat> for him, any, any text in the Bible leads to God. And to illustrate that, he says, no matter where you are in England, there's a road that brings you to London. Okay, It's true. You can be anywhere in, in England on the mainland, well, you know, the island, but, but you know, not one of the smaller islands, and uh, no matter where you are, you can get to London. But here's the difference. Not every road you take will get you to London. Right? Not every road is going to bring you to God. There's ultimately only one road, one way, and that is Jesus. And that is an offensive message to many around us. And some of us have felt that sting from the words of others that are close to us. How dare you limit salvation to Jesus? To which we should be reminding them, it's not what I want. It's what Jesus has said. But Jesus the prophet speaks the truth to us, even if we don't want to hear the truth. Well, now we come to another problem at the end of this text. <clears throat> Why did Jesus do so few miracles there? You see, uh, unlike his time by the sea, uh, Mark recounts that he could do no mighty work there except uh, a few laying on of hands and healing of people. One might somehow think, if they were superstitious, uh, that Jesus' power had left him. Uh, they might think that maybe his power was tied to the proximity to the sea for some strange reason. Uh, who knows what people might think. But the issue is not the power of Jesus. We get the clue here because it says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus is now the one who's astonished. Jesus is now the one who's marveling, uh, but not because of the greatness of who they are, uh, but of their unwillingness to believe. Despite the signs that they had heard about, despite the teaching they had heard in the synagogue, despite these things, they're unwilling to believe. And so uh, the issue for why Jesus did not do these great deeds in, in Nazareth was their unbelief. Meaning that only a few of them came to, came to him seeking to be healed because they believed he could heal. The other morning I was reading through Hebrews 
and uh, came across chapters 3 and 4. It talks about um, on, the day to, on the day that you hear God's voice, not to put the Lord God to test. In Hebrews 3 it says, Take care, brothers, lest any of you uh, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And uh, the author of Hebrews is pointing back to the wilderness generation who heard the good news but did not believe the good news and did not enter into the rest that had been promised. And so he's saying to them, you have heard the good news, uh, but you must believe the good news in order for you to enter this rest. He's a little more clear about that in Hebrews 4, verse 2. For the good news came to them, came to us just as to them. Now, let's stop for a second. Some people mistakenly think that the ancient Hebrews didn't have the gospel. Not according to the author of Hebrews. Because that word that's translated good news is evangelion. Gospel. So the gospel came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so the problem was not the message, the problem was their unbelief regarding the message. Same thing here. The day of testing has come, The word of the Lord has come, and is Nazareth going to hear and believe, or is Nazareth going to test and try because of their unbelief and turn away from the life that could be theirs? Without faith, you are without Christ. And if you are without Christ, you are without His benefits, because we cannot separate Jesus from His benefits. We cannot, as John Calvin says, tear him asunder. If you have Jesus, you have all of the benefits. If you don't have Jesus, you have none of them. Because they can't be pried out of him. They can't be separated from him. And so, what we see here is that apart from faith... Mercy simply hardens people's hearts. Thomas Watson mentions this, the mercies of God make a sinner proud, but a saint humble. And so, uh, when someone who believes hears this incredible message, they're humbled by, by the grace of God, but the person who is unbelief, mercy makes them proud. For an illustration, as an example of this, I, I think New York has changed some of their laws recently. And one of them is the cash bail law. And, and there's some good reasons to, to not require cash bail because some people can't get cash bail. And for paltry crimes, they can sit in jail for who knows how long. However, it emboldens the unrepentant. And so we've seen an increase in the crime rates in New York. Some, if they get arrested, 
are repentant. But the ones who aren't, receiving this form of mercy, hardens them, makes them proud, and leads to greater crime. What we're looking at here in Nazareth is the great danger of unbelief. Precisely because unbelief separates people from Jesus and therefore from salvation. Faith, on the other hand, in Jesus, receives Christ Himself and with Christ all of the benefits that come with Him. It's like getting married. You get all the benefits that come with that person. And you might be married to someone and go, what benefits? But there are benefits, really. There are benefits. One one benefit that we receive is that we receive a new home and a new family that refreshes the weary. Now, an earthly marriage, um, you might think of a new home and a new family and think of the the family you married into and go, oh boy. (laughs) I know some of you. Some of you think that. And I'd be with you. I'm fortunate enough to have married into a I married up in terms of family. Uh, Amy's family is a big improvement over my family. Um, so, um, But when you come and are rejected by those who are closest to you on an earthly level, it's of great benefit to know that you receive a new and better family that is going to get even better when we're all purified and are around the throne of Jesus when we finally get to our new home. Right? Gospel hope. Um, If if I go back for a memorial service, it'll be interesting to see how many people from my new family, not just Amy's family, but the new family of faith that I have come to uh, pay their respects compared to the people the rest of my family bring. I'm curious. We'll see what happens. But Jesus' benefits only come to those who believe. Dorothy believed there's no place like home. It can be the best of places or the worst of places, but there is no place like it. When Jesus went home, what he found there was unbelief. What does he find when he comes to you with these promises? Does he find a faith that receives them with joy? Or does he find an evil, unbelieving heart that thinks they're worth nothing? Nazareth was a place of great disappointment. Going home can weary a disciple of Jesus when they experience that unbelief among those that are closest to them. But when we embrace Jesus by faith, we find that, again, we have this new and better home 
and we can be refreshed because we know Jesus prepares a new home for all who believe. Let's pray. Father, uh, I know that left to myself, I'd be no better than the people of Nazareth. It's only because of your mercies upon me um, that's different. Help us to reckon with this. To ask those questions. Do I believe? Or am I just going to church? Help us as we we are occasionally forced to reconnect with home and and the message that we bring and recognizing that it's not always welcome, this message of Jesus. And help us to find refreshment in Christ himself so that we're not overcome by um, the unbelief we see in people we love, the unbelief that we can't do anything about. Uh, but only you can. And that's humbling. So be with us in that mess. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.